Good morning. It is a tremendous privilege for Ursula and I to be back with you on this Sunday morning. 36 years ago, along with four other young adult couples, meeting in the living room of Dorothy Smoker, we were welcomed into the Mennonite Church. And that welcome has given us hope and joy in the years since. There may be challenges and struggles in our church, but we remember the gracious hospitality and the generous welcome we received then. And we're so thrilled that this church has continued strong. I bring you greetings from your sisters and brothers in 25 other congregations in the Pacific Southwest. They are pleased that you are part of this family, and I rejoice that I have the privilege on their behalf of extending to you their greetings. I began my first pastorate in my early 20s. It was in a part of the country that was very religious. The people that were my parishioners were menial laborers on the farms where they farmed ostriches and grapes. The owners of the farms were white and they were very religious in their observances of what they might have defined as Christian spirituality. But I also knew that these same farmers, literally, this is back in the uh, mid-70s, beat their workers and paid them a pittance so that halfway through the month, families ran out of sustenance and needed to buy from the farm store on credit. Their children, when they reached the age of 13, were taken out of school to work on the farms. And these farm owners were deacons and elders in their local congregation. From that time, I have been deeply interested in the subject to which your series has brought us today, that of spirituality. Roget's Thesaurus offers the following synonym for spiritual or spirituality, disembodied, incorporeal, ethereal. These analogs expose a grave problem that plagues and more grievously derails our healthy spiritual formation and discipleship. The antonyms for spirituality in Merriam-Webster are temporal, secular, and non-religious. These understandings of spirituality are rooted in Greek Platonic thought and strongly influenced by Gnostic ideas, they have distorted the understanding of Christian spirituality. A large segment of the Western church 
came to embrace the spiritual over the physical, the soul over the body, and inclined a huge part of the Western world toward otherworldliness over earthliness. Western attempts to distinguish itself from the more animal impulses and from other cultures they regarded as inferior, and by extension, from the body and death itself, accelerated quickly during the Enlightenment period. The damage that has resulted is a byproduct of this commitment to mind and dualistic linear thinking. It's sadly influenced and manifested itself through sexism, climate change, and widespread disease that plagues our society and must be reckoned with. It is time to bring what has been forgotten, namely the body and those who are labeled as other and the physical world back into our human consciousness so that our world can heal and be restored. Since when we separate the experience of salvation from material and physical acts of love and obedience to God, we impoverish our discipleship, and we come to view worship as more a matter of individual experience of intimacy with God than also a community response that seeks to advance justice and the fullness of life for all people. It is true that humans are more than merely physical, but we are never less than embodied beings. In the Old Testament, the emphasis is on humans in their entirety as complex material and spiritual beings. The classic statement by the liberation theologian Gustavo Gutierrez aptly represents this view. Gutierrez wrote that salvation is a cure for sin. Salvation, he said, embraces every aspect of our humanity, body and spirit, individual and society, person and cosmos, time and eternity. In this inclusive sense, salvation is not only a matter of life beyond death. Gutierrez was clear that salvation permeates every economic, political, and social reality that we are a part of. Each of the New Testament evangelists espoused and publicized their firm conviction that at the heart of the gospel is a mystery of cosmic proportion. When God came to be with us and took on the form of a human person in the person of Jesus, the incarnation is the most revolutionary fact in human history. It announces that the love of God is not some otherworldly, unreal, extraterrestrial illusion. Jesus, as the Word become flesh, 
did not only speak of love as though from a distance and untouched. Far from a reassuring fairy tale, the incarnation of Jesus announces that God loved us so much that God was willing to assume our human condition, bathed in blood and sweat and tears, and subject to suffering, pain, and rejection. Jesus came as a demonstration that God cares deeply about all of our human circumstances. This is the mystery that we remind ourselves on each time we come to the Lord's table and we reaffirm the body of Christ broken for us, the blood of Christ shed for us. I pray that this reminder that is at the heart of the gospel will bring us home to God's divine love and mercy manifested in the person of Jesus. I pray that this reminder will banish false pride and phony hubris in us and be replaced with a sincere humility grounded in the fact that God bridged the alienation between us and God's self, becoming flesh and pledging God's relentless solidarity with us, with you, with me, with every human being that has ever lived upon this earth. I especially pray today that our appreciation of the meaning and the consequence of the incarnation will begin to transform our spirituality. When I was yet engaged in mission leadership, some of my saddest moments came when I was in the company of other mission leaders who too frequently, in accounting for their mission efforts, gave reports of the number of souls that were saved as a result of their effort. This is not Jesus' understanding of salvation. Jesus' life and ministry are bookended by two particular moments of peculiar clarity. At the initiation of Jesus' ministry, Jesus goes to a synagogue in Nazareth, and Luke the Evangelist provides an account. It says, Luke says, Jesus went to a synagogue in Nazareth, and on the Sabbath day he went to the synagogue as was his custom, stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. Unrolling it, Jesus found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to announce freedom for prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor to all people. And then Luke says this, Jesus rolled up the scroll, returned to his seat, and said, this very day in your hearing, this scripture is being fulfilled.
And Jesus went from that synagogue to the surrounding villages and countryside towns, and he fed the poor. He healed the sick. He reached out and embraced those who were rejected and despised. The second bookend comes to us from the Gospel of Matthew, as it was read from chapter 25. It reports that near the end of Jesus' life, he spoke about the anticipated judgment. And in his teaching, Jesus suggests that the judgment is not something far off, an extraterrestrial event. Rather, Jesus declares that judgment is a current, everyday reality, not something that is deferred. Each day, when we encounter those who hunger, when we encounter those who have no access to clean water, when we encounter those who are aliens and strangers, without appropriate documentation, perhaps, when we encounter those who are naked and unhoused, there then, says Jesus, encounter me. It is a fact of the incarnation. The fact of the incarnation establishes the ground upon which Jesus equates love of neighbor with love of God. Jesus declares that loving God and loving neighbor are not separate realities. They are inextricably bound together, indistinguishable. God is found in our neighbor, and salvation is identified with the entire process of becoming fully human and championing the humanity of all people. Jesus' injunction to love God and love neighbor underscores the importance of advancing compassion and care, freedom and dignity, justice and peace for every human being. The narratives in the Gospels, which relate Jesus' encounters with marginalized people, suggest to me that Jesus is not God in an ontological or metaphysical sense. More convincingly, the Gospel narrative suggests Jesus is the incarnation of God precisely in the relational significance of those whom he encounters. The meaning of the incarnation is to be found in Jesus' total immersion in the historical reality of marginalization, of oppression and poverty, of suffering and pain of those whom he engaged with. In his witness, Jesus absolutizes the values of unconditional love for every person, despite their pedigree or reputation, of universal forgiveness, however grievous their previous sin, of concern for the suffering and the hungry without exception. Jesus' death is unique because he assumes the suffering 
experienced by God on all the crosses where humans suffer and struggle and die. The incarnation brings us to the liberating conviction that God does not remain outside of history, indifferent to the present course of evil, and confirms that God's commitment and solidarity is with the poor and the oppressed. And as such, it is a critical response to imperial theology, which began in AD 312 with the Constantinian Compact, which allied the Christian movement with power, domination, and violence. This alliance compromised the church and eroded the credibility of Christian witness in the world. The incarnation instead calls us to return to a spirituality that was mirrored by the early church, an embodied spirituality, a commitment to recover our discipleship from that muscular Christianity of, of the Constantinian era, which led to bloody crusades, 600 years of the Inquisition, and an imperialism that issued in tragic colonialistic ventures. Some of our credibility sadly has been lost through our compromise with imperial disembodied spirituality, disconnected from how we relate to our neighbors. Those of you who grew up in the era that I did know that one of the more important things, well, I was raised in a non-Anabaptist communion, one of the more important things was knowing the spiritual laws, that I am a sinner, that Jesus died in my stead. If I believe Jesus, I will have eternal life. And it didn't matter how I lived my life here on this earth. God's purpose ultimately is about justice, compassion, communion, and freedom. These are not merely social benefits. They are, for faith, part and parcel of the kingdom or the reign of God, which Jesus announced. In one of his writings, Leonardo Boff suggests that God's purposes are realized where love flourishes, where justice appears upon the earth, where partnership and communion are inaugurated, and where liberty gains strength and substance. For Boff, spirituality denotes something not so much interior or non-physical, nor indeed something coming from without or from above, nor again something to be hoped for beyond this world after death. Spirituality, Boff said, cannot be privatized in any particular region of the human condition, such as in constitution, such as in the soul, or in some manner of spiritual goods, or in the church. Rather, Boff says, spirituality is all-embracing, proclaiming the deliverance of every human and cosmic reality from the sin of poverty, 
from the sin of starvation, from the sin of dehumanization, from the sin of the spirit of vengeance, from the sin of rejection of God, and is made manifest through the triumph of truth, justice, love, and concord, overcoming this alienated and subjected world. It comprises both hope and judgment, proclaiming and declaiming. It is not concerned merely with certain spheres of human existence in the world, rather impacts every sphere of our existence and the created order. The socioeconomic, political, and cultural situation of peoples challenge our Christian credibility. Unemployment, malnutrition, infant mortality, illiteracy, trafficking, people trafficking, and increasingly the inequality between the rich and the poor, racial and cultural discrimination, all of these do violence to our witness in the world. I want to close with this brief vignette. Elizabeth Bonker was a valedictorian at Rollins College in Florida. Elizabeth had non-speaking autism. She hasn't spoken since she was 15. She worked on her speech for months and used text-to-speech software to deliver her address. In the culmination of the talk, she evoked Fred Rogers, Rollins' most famous alumnus. When he died, Elizabeth said, a handwritten note was found in his wallet. It said, life is for service. We are called to serve as an everyday act of humility, as a habit of mind, he might have said, as a spiritual discipline. To see the worth of every person we meet, to strive to follow the example of those who chose to share their last crust of bread. This, my dear sisters and brothers, is a reflection and a demonstration of true spirituality. May we be transformed in that direction. Amen.